Brought to you by Penguin. His turns of rage, and it's an incredible one where the guy goes to bed and he, he can't sleep and he puts his hand under the pillow and he feels a, a mouth with hair and teeth, but not, he says, the mouth of a human being. <laughs> And it just makes you go cold. It's just such a brilliant thing, you know. Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where we try to uncover sources of inspiration through a series of personal objects that our guests have chosen. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and this episode was recorded recently from my spare room. I spoke to an esteemed actor, comedian, screenwriter, director, producer, and novelist. Jeez, a busy boy. He's written for and acted in Doctor Who, Sherlock and Dracula and is one quarter of the team that created the brilliantly dark comedy, very unsettling, The League of Gentlemen. He joined me to talk in part about narrating a brand new audiobook of Bram Stoker's Dracula and the BBC radio dramatisations of M.R. James' ghost stories in which he plays the man himself, M.R. James. It is, of course, the wonderful Mark Gatiss. Now, do forgive us if things sound a little bit glitchy and uneven as we recorded down an electronic line over 200 miles apart. Here's Mark, and the first thing I asked him was, what everybody else is calling self-isolation, isn't that just life for a writer? It should be a good time to, to write, but a lot of people I know, myself included, are finding it quite hard to hunker down and get on with things. You sort of wake up every morning, and I remember reading, you know, people's... Uh, mass observation diaries from the war and things like that, uh, saying that, you know, you, you wake up and for a moment you forget that it sort of hits you again. So there is a, a weird pull going on because half of your brain is telling you that things will never be the same again. And I don't think they will. I mean, this is going to have an enormous impact, not just in terms of people's lives, loss of life, but economically, we, we just don't know. Do you feel as though creatively it will perhaps push you in different directions, directions you didn't think that you would be going in? It's it's a hard question to answer because we have really no idea what it's going to be like on the other side. Um, you've got to plan, I think, otherwise you'd go mad. But I'm supposed to be directing a play in Chichester in the summer. Uh, I've written a new adaptation of A Christmas Carol, which I'm in, which is meant to happen in... November, December, and we're supposed to be filming something in May, and all these things are just on permanent hold now. You've got to cross your fingers and hope that by then we'll be back to something like normality. But you know, writing and acting uh, is perilous at the best of times. People live virtually hand to mouth as it is, and now it's just received this massive, sort of cataclysmic shock. Um, so people have got to be helped. But but what that means on the other side is really hard to say because it's going to take so much time to to put that back together, isn't it? And um, I mean, on, on the plus side, there's going to be an absolute craving for stuff. I mean, the desperation to go to the theatre, the cinema. To, the, the, there are sectors of the creative economy which are going to do fine. In fact, some places are probably going to um, benefit from it, um, oddly enough. So it's not all do doom and gloom, but... Um, I, I just don't know what the creative response uh, will be. I mean, those wonderful stories from the war about uh, Dame Myra Hess's lunchtime 
piano concerts and things like people were d- craving culture you know but that was like yeah. six years of war so i think in terms of a response we we have to see what's what's left uh, on the other side of this what- what mark would be the Mark Gatiss live stream then? Because you're seeing comedians doing their sets and live streaming them. Joe Wicks, of course, doing his exercise every morning for the nation. And we've got uh, Chris Martin the other day was doing something. What would Mark Gatiss be giving live to the nation then? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I wouldn't presume to inflict myself on anybody. What a dreadful idea. No, nothing. Well, you've... you've- You've already recorded this, um, the audio book version of Bram Stoker's mm. Dracula. So that's one thing that people can have in their lives. Yes, but I wouldn't do that. Li- I wouldn't do that as a live stream. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Dress up. I mean, just go for it. Just do Nobody needs to see that. Nobody needs to see that. No. Um, why did you say yes to doing this? I wish I knew. Bram it was really hard. <laughs> Um, I said yes in the middle of making Dracula. By the time it came around to doing it, I, I was so dracula up to the back fangs. But I really, I really enjoyed it, I have to say. It was, it, I had a terrific time. It took six days to do. Um, and it was a, it's a big challenge because there are so many voices and there's a lot of posh young men, really, who... Uh, the danger is they all sound the same. And actually, the most sort of exciting voice to do, which is Dracula, he's hardly in it. I, I mean, they're, they're very interesting things, talking books. I, I always have the same experience. When you start, you feel like you'll never get through it. There's, it's it's amazing how how much you trip over your words to start with. Or, you know, just there's just extraordinary technical things go on, as we know. And, and then suddenly you get into a rhythm. And it just flies. Then you stop for the day. When you have to come back at sort of nine o'clock the next morning, you have to go through that again, strangely enough, until you get into the rhythm of it. And then it's absolutely fine. I mean, there were certain parts of it, particularly towards the end, which is all sort of action and they're chasing Dracula and and his um, gypsy uh, guards back to Castle Dracula across Transylvania. It's a big action stuff. And it was really exciting to do. And it just kind of flows out of you when you're in the sort of zone but you have you have to get into the zone quite carefully after after some time so six days i mean that sounds quite intense yes it was i mean it's it's hard i've got friends who've done you know colossal uh, very very sort of doorsteppy books with you know 14 different russian characters and stuff like that and you really have to do your homework you've got to go through it and think right this voice for this one and and it's a real challenge. Um, so I take my hat off to people who do it a lot because I think it must be really difficult. I did. I actually I made Renfield uh, Scottish in this version, d- just as a sort of way of having a different voice in it. Why are you drawn to horror? Do you remember the um, brilliant nineteen eighty one TV version of Salem's Lot with David Soule? Oh, I do. Yeah. The, the character in that, uh, Mark. At the start of it, his parents are worried about him because he's obsessed with horror and horror comics and glow-in-the-dark horror models and all these things. And they actually get a priest round to talk him out of it. And I remember I thought, God, he's like me. He's even got the same name. And you can ask that question of so many people who who are involved with horror and and ghost stories and sci-fi. And at some stage, a teacher or a parent has always sort of 
furrow their brow with worry about their future uh, but they those people have gone on to become you know the the, the mainstays of of the entertainment industry because they love they love this stuff and i think that's that's the truth you can't really answer it you just say well i, I am i mean you might as well ask somebody why they like uh, playing football or so. it's just what you like and there's no there's no easy answer at all not at all I, you can't really just sort of say Oh, this happened to me. Or I saw I saw the Brides of Dracula, my first horror film, when I was four, and I was just something about it instantly chimed with me, you know, and it never left. It's an interesting form of babysitting, Brides <laughs> of Dracula, four year old. Well, I used to this sure funny bit. I used to I used to say all the time that my parents were really very liberal. Uh, essentially just sort of laissez-faire about it all. And I was I was giving this answer yet again, and, and I suddenly thought, do you know what? Of course not. It was just what my dad wanted to watch. It's actually fantastically selfish parenting. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We just watched what dad wanted to watch, and therefore we watched that, and I'm so grateful for it. <laughs> um, let's get into your first object, which are trilobite fossils, why this is an object. But it's a, it's a childhood passion and like most childhood passions if i find if you revisit them in when you're grown up it has an incredibly beneficial effect whatever whatever this this the sort of pure joy of it, it it still works i get the same thing i, I watching horror movies on a friday night in in their old slot from a very very small age if if i were, if we drove anywhere near a, a quarry or if we went to the seaside i would start combing the rocks for fossils and so I, I've got lots and lots of them I collected over the years. But trilobites were special to me because um, they're essentially, they were special because they were scarce. They were unavailable to me. Trilobites, if you don't know them, uh, were an incredibly successful marine arthropod. They look like wood lice. And there are yeah. millions of different types. So they're absolutely beautiful, strange, three-segmented things, hence the name. And for some reason, they just got me and i used to correspond with the guy at the natural history museum because they became extinct in the permian era there was just a chance that i might find one of the, the last ones you know and there was one oh man, i've never told anyone this there was one i i was so convinced um it looked like the the cheek of a trilobite and i sent it in a jiffy bag to the natural history museum and my correspondent said he I, guess I still remember it he, it was he thought it was the impression of the anterior section of a brachiopod which is a kind of mollusk and he just put in brackets sorry it's not a trilobite i was really crushed what you could do was on and i used to do on our seaside trips to whitby another dracula connection which is where i first read dracula you could buy them from fossil shops you see and i i bought a couple of trilobites just to just to have them but it was not the same of course as actually finding one and i didn't find one until 2000 we went on holiday to virginia and which is prime territory and we we rented a hut in the blue ridge mountains and i remember as we were driving up through the forest there was so much exposed rock. My, literally, my heart started to beat faster. We got out of the car and I ran back down the track to some exposed rock and I found one. It was a tiny, oh tiny gosh. thing. I still got it. But it was the first one I ever found and it meant the world to me. 
really interested to move on to another object of yours, which is the ghost stories of uh, Montague Road James. How old yeah. were you when you first came across the ghost stories of M.R. James? It was probably the film Night of the Demon, which uh, is an adaptation of his story, Casting the Runes. Brilliant film. And I saw that when I was very young, about eight or nine, I think. And and then sort of simultaneously with that, with the ghost stories uh, for Christmas uh, on, on BT2. Um, so uh, those were my really my first exposures. And I mean, I've chosen this uh, sort of emblematically because, you know, James is the greatest of them all. But also he represents just the, the notion of them. And um, and ghost stories are my favourite things. I, I love horror and I still love horror in all its many different forms. But ghosts are my favourite thing. I'm not quite sure why. Possibly because also Christmas Carol is my favourite story. But I love oh, yes. I love something. There's something about them which is different to vampires, werewolves, zombies or mummies or whatever. This, the idea of, of the revenant, I think, of... of 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 the the past intruding into the present, it's it's left a very long legacy um, for me. It casts a very long shadow, and James James's stories are just so the best ones are just so brilliant. And he he, he wrote them to be read. He read them on Christmas Eve in King's College, Cambridge, and um, there's something brilliant about that that he knew he had an audience. So he he, he fills them full of sort of comic secondary characters because he, he obviously wanted to do his cockney voice and things like that and i love that about them but fundamentally they're just brilliant exercises in frightening people that the, the growing atmosphere of dread it's so cleverly done so carefully done you know he, he drip feeds it. it it starts very mundanely very ordinarily and then you just get a glimpse of something being not quite right and and his turns of phrase you know it's an incredible one where the guy goes to bed and he, he can't sleep and he puts his hand under the pillow. And, and James always does this thing um, of, of slight, he calls it the haze of distance. So his stories are told secondhand. This happened to a friend of mine about 30 years ago or something. Like that. It's always slight yes. removed, which is very clever. So he's telling the story and he says, this man, he went to bed, couldn't sleep. And he puts, puts his hand under the pillow and he feels... A, a mouth with hair and teeth, but not, he says, the mouth of a human being. <laughs> and it just makes you go cold. It's just such a brilliant thing, you know. So then playing him. Oh, yes. How's that? Then? Well, to kind of become him. The great Neil Brand asked me um, if I would read uh, five of James's stories for Christmas on the radio, and also the brilliant gift of of an original play which Neil had written about M.R. James himself. So it was a very nice experience all around. Let's move on to your next object, Mark, which is The Wagnerites by Aubrey Beardsley. Why this subject? Uh, well, I've got a um, a print of this. Um, it's Beardsley is a, an artist I. I always loved and, I, and the reason that it's sort of uppermost in my mind is I've just made a BBC4 documentary about him. There's a massive retrospective that just opened at the Tate, which of course is now in total limbo, so nobody knows if it'll reopen or not. But I've always uh, drawn and I've latterly got, really got back into it and drawing and painting. And uh, I made a documentary about John Minton, who's another of my favourite artists uh, a couple of years ago. And I was approached if, about 
doing one about Beardsley. And it was a really um, easy uh, question to answer because when I was a teenager, I was completely obsessed with him. He's, I say this in the documentary, but in a, in a way, he's the sort of poster boy for bedroom decadence. Um, he... You know, when you when you're that when you're sort of fourteen and think you're gonna you you know everything and you're gonna rule the world, um, his amazing sort of pose of of sort of careless decadence is amazingly attractive. And I went to his grave when I was twenty one. I went on a pilgrimage to his grave. I had my hair. I had a terrible center parting like him. I looked rather like him as a as a, as a youth, although I didn't have consumption, thank God. But um, and he died at twenty five. Good grief, at 25. Yeah, 25. So he lived his life at an extraordinary rate. There's a wonderful story about um, uh, his health was always fragile and a, and a friend of his saw him running through the streets of London without an overcoat on the depths of winter and he, his friend admonished him and basically says, it doesn't matter, I am always burning. And he meant that both physically and sort of um, artistically. And he had this incredible short career illustrated Oscar Wilde's Salome, which made him notorious overnight and then became the chief illustrator of the Yellow Book and the Savoy. And he's the, he's the, he's the prince of, of the decadent movement. But making this doc was so wonderful. We, we went back to the grave and it was such a strange thing to go back, you know, 30 odd years later. But the the main thing was how much I appreciate him as an artist. He, as a master of pen and ink, he's he's absolutely incredible. He's, there's there's no one like Beardsley. And if you if you follow his trajectory, he goes from being a gifted amateur to the best in the world in about six months, it, and it's quite extraordinary. He he was very um, in love with uh, Whistler's work, but Whistler was very I think it was well maybe jealous of him, but they they didn't have a good relationship, and and Beardsley tried often to sort of make something happen, it just wouldn't work, and obviously Whistler was famously. Uh, rather bitchy and funny uh, but really right towards the end of his life they bumped into each other in in France and Beardsley had a portfolio of his latest work and Whistler looked through it quite casually and then he said I have made a very great mistake you are a very great artist and Beardsley broke down and it's terribly affecting because all he was really looking for I think was was that kind of um, affirmation, affirmation. Uh, and then he was dead six months later uh, so, so and, and the Wagnerites is, I think, one of his greatest works. If you see it, it's it's a it's basically some patrons in a in a, an opera house waiting for Wagner to start, and it's almost entirely black ink. It's just such an incredibly bold piece of work. It just amazing. Is this something that continues to this day that you will come across things even now and say, right, I have to know everything about this person or this subject. I still develop sort of crushes, on, I suppose, on, on things, on subjects. And my school days were perfectly ordinary and, and happy. But I sometimes think I, I somehow, I, I didn't realise at the time what a gift it was to, to be able to have that time to just find out stuff. And I, I really love, I'm very, very hungry all the time for, for new stuff. I love learning. Um, I love learning new things. And I, I, so I'm, I'm, painting a lot now and and actually just trying to get better and, and you know and throwing paintings away when they don't work and stuff like that I find that really exciting uh and same with 
writing or, or acting as well, just just like trying to push yourself, I suppose. I mean, I don't know. I was a, I was quite a lazy child, and I might have made I might be making up for it in that way. But it is it is a very real thing that if you if you sort of if someone recommends a writer to you or an actor or or something, and you just go, how have I never heard of that? You can. You, it's really exciting, isn't it? You suddenly get a rush of as you know, as much as I'm an arch nostalgist and half in love with useful death, the uh, the, the desire to find new things and keep pushing forward is, is very strong. Your final object, an easel, and I think we've answered as to why the easel is important to you. Again, because um what do you find um in terms of benefits of you having that time to paint i've had this this big easel for donkey's years and uh and i'd sort of i'd have a go about once every six months and i suddenly thought this is stupid why don't i just try and get better and i and i did exactly what you're describing i i i made sure i went to a class every monday and i did the stuff that you always put off i said no i'm going to i'm going to devote this time i'm going to do it and i just completely fell in love with it and what i found is it it uses a different. It scratches a different itch, if you know what I mean. It uses a different part of my head. I find time passes in a totally different way. It's incredibly absorbing. I think it was Churchill who said to Vivian Lee, who was going through one of her periodic many personal crises, he, he said, "You should paint. You should paint. It's the only thing that uses all the senses at once." And it's true. It just. It just. There's an incredible amount of hand-eye coordination going on, but it sort of. It's sort of zen-like at times. It can just you just get into an amazing focus, looking at the subject of the painting, and then just trying to capture it and the technique of mixing the paints and and whatever that effect is going to be. You know, um, so I'm just really uh, I feel slightly sad that I I didn't do it 20 years ago, uh, but at the same time, it's the same sort of uh, sort of hungry rush to to know stuff and and, and learn stuff. I find very um, very exciting really what has success afforded you more of well a, a choice is the truth yes choice which is the most amazing gift of all really you know thank god i'm not have not been in the position for a long time of being hand-to-mouth and also uh, of of choosing the things i want to do and an awful lot of my output in the last 10 or 15 years has been dream stuff you know people do say you know it's like do you pinch yourself I because yes of course i do i mean writing a, a new dracula or sherlock holmes it's what i always wanted to do so uh i, I really i have absolutely no complaints obviously are you good at accepting things that you're not very good at or will you just keep going until you are good at them oh no i wish i were i give up far too easily i think i think i've tried <laughs> to i've tried to learn italian about 300 times I'd somehow need to be made to do that I mean this is a good time to learn Italian isn't it I won't do it but yeah. I, I think it depends <laughs> I think it, I think it's about what it's like it's like having a good teacher isn't it you, you want to please a good teacher another of my sort of specky geeky hobbies as a child was astronomy I had a not very good telescope but I used to stand and freeze my balls off in the depths of winter uh, looking at the stars uh, on my own, and uh, at school, I, physics was a was a, an absolute nightmare to me. I just I was just hopeless at it. But for two weeks, one term, we did astronomy, and I 
I absolutely blossomed. I knew so much from my own, you know, hobby. And a similar thing happened in geography with with uh, with geology. We we couldn't do geology as an O level. You could do it in the school across the road, unbelievably. And I was so frustrated by that. But I had such a passion for it. It was a brilliant feeling to be sort of on top of something, on top of a subject, you know. But I think you've got to be led, if you can, you've got to be led by your passion. I mean, the the obvious, the easy answer, as people always say, is, you know, make your make your passion into your work. And most people would kill to do that. But it's true. And if you can, and I have, thank God, uh, that's the secret of it. Um, the only danger is you, 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 know, you kill your passion by making it into work. But... If you're lucky, you can sort of get a good balance. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark, hanging out with you in self-isolation. Not at all. Today. You've really inspired me to learn Italian. Oh, good. So I can do one thing you can't. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Now, before you go, there's a brilliant moment from the opening of the new Dracula audiobook narrated by Mark that we would love you to hear. Let's go to a special sneak preview from that now. Count Dracula had directed me to go to the Golden Kroner Hotel, which I found, to my great delight, to be thoroughly old-fashioned, for, of course, I wanted to see all I could of the ways of the country. I was evidently expected, but when I got near the door, I faced a cheery-looking elderly woman in the usual peasant dress, white undergarment with long double apron, front and back, of coloured stuff fitting almost too tight for modesty. When I came close, she bowed and said, the hair, Englishman? Uh, yes, I said. Jonathan Harker. She smiled and gave some message to an elderly man in white shirt sleeves who had followed her to the door. He went, but immediately returned with a letter. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina. A place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and will bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. That was Dracula, written by Bram Stoker, of course, and read there by my guest, Mark Gatiss. The audiobook will be available to buy on the 25th of June, and in the meantime, the M.R. James BBC Radio Collection, a compilation of 12 of M.R. James's most popular ghost stories recorded as radio dramas, also featuring Mark, is available to download now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. And please remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast. We'd love to know what you think. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Hi, I'm Hamza, and this is why your kids should be listening to the Puffin Podcast. It's funny, because obviously I'm hilarious, and you know my co-host, they're all right too, I guess. And it's got so many stories, I could write another book. So check us out now. This is the Puffin Podcast.